Well, good morning. We are gathered here to worship and to hear the word, and we are gathered to pray. And prayer is our topic for this morning. We're going to be talking about core value number four, which is humble prayer. I want to begin by reading to you from James chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. We'll be in a another portion of scripture for most of the message, but I want to begin the message by reading to you James chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. James says that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. It, as the old King James Version used to put it, availeth much. It accomplishes much. And Scripture is replete with examples of the effectiveness of prayer. When Moses prayed at Sinai, God relented and did not destroy those who worshiped the golden calf. When Hannah prayed, the Lord opened her womb and she gave birth to the prophet Samuel. When Hezekiah prayed, the Lord rescued Israel from the mighty army of Sennacherib. When Daniel prayed in exile... The Lord revealed to him when the Messiah would come. And when Elijah prayed, it did not rain for three years. And when he prayed again, it rained immediately. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. As many of you know, before I came to Calvary, I spent 15 years ministering with Slavic Gospel Association. And the president of SGA, the founding president of SGA, its founder, Peter Dynica, would often say, much prayer, much power. He even has a book by that name. Much prayer, much power. Little prayer, little power. No prayer, no power. That was his key phrase. If you're around Slavic Gospel Association folks or those who knew Peter Dynica, ask him, what's the first phrase that comes to mind when you think of Peter Dynica? And it would be this one, much prayer, much power. Peter Dynica understood that true spiritual power comes only from God. So if we want to have spiritual power, we need to ask for it. If we want the Lord to work mightily among us, we must ask him to do it. We must pray. To be an effective church, we must be a praying church. And this is an, el- an area that the elders really feel that Calvary Bible Church as a local church needs to improve upon. This is an area of weakness for us, and it's something that needs to be strengthened. This is, by the way, why we made a strategic decision to return to the historic practice of a corporate prayer meeting. We've begun re-emphasizing corporate prayer in our Sunday evening services. This used to be kind of standard practice, not only here, but in every church in the United States until a couple decades ago. The elders are asking every ministry to make prayer a priority and asking every member to make prayer a priority. Core value number four is humble prayer. Humble prayer. Here's what the elders have written. Quote, prayer expresses a posture of humble dependence on God. Jesus taught and demonstrated that prayer is vital to an intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. Scripture teaches us to express adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. 
We are commanded to pray for our leaders, for one another, and for the lost souls all around us. Therefore, we humbly pray in our gatherings and in our personal relationships with Jesus. I want to read that to you again. Listen carefully to what the elders are saying. Prayer expresses a posture of humble dependence upon God. Philippians 4, 6. Jesus taught and demonstrated that prayer is vital to an intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father, John 17. Scripture teaches us to express adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. We are commanded to pray for our leaders, 1 Timothy 2.8, for one another, James 5, and for the lost souls all around us, Matthew 9. Therefore, we humbly pray in our gatherings and in our personal relationships with Jesus. Humble prayer must be a core value of this local church. As with all of our core values, the Bible has a lot to say about prayer. There are literally dozens of passages we could turn to which emphasize this vitally important topic. But there is one passage that throughout church history has really captured the thinking of Christians on the topic of prayer. It's the passage that usually is at the forefront of people's minds when they think about prayer, and that is Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer. And that's where we will be focused this morning. So please turn to Matthew chapter 6 as we look at the Lord's Prayer. We call this the Lord's Prayer because it was taught to us directly by Jesus. But it can also be appropriately, perhaps more appropriately, called the disciples' prayer because it's a prayer that the Lord taught to the disciples. It was a pattern for prayer that He taught to them. And He taught this pattern for prayer on more than one occasion. He taught it in the Sermon on the Mount, but He also taught it on other occasions. One of them was in Luke chapter 11 when one of the first disciples came up and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And the Lord's prayer is the Lord teaching us how to pray. By the way, I, I love that phrase that that early disciple said, Lord, teach us to pray. I love that phrase because I find it comforting. It lets me know that I'm not alone in finding prayer to be difficult. Lord, teach us to pray. It's an acknowledgement that prayer doesn't come naturally or easily. Prayer is something we have to learn. Prayer is something we have to be taught, and we have to be taught by Christ. When a baby is born after service, I got to meet one of the newest attenders of our church, sweet young little boy. He didn't know how to talk. I talked to him, but he wasn't saying anything back to me except for with his eyes, just amazing eyes that babies have. Babies have to learn how to talk. Their parents teach them how to talk, and that's a multi-year process. As they mature, their vocabulary increases. The complexity of what they're able to communicate increases. And likewise, when you're born again, you're not born again knowing how to talk. You have to learn how to talk to God. You have to learn to pray. And so we come to our Father and say, Lord, teach us to pray. Prayer is important, and like most important things, it's difficult. It requires self-discipline. The alarm clock goes off and you have to not hit the snooze button so that you have time for prayer before work. It requires prioritizing it in your life, even when you're tired, busy, or distracted. And sometimes it's hard to pray simply because our hearts aren't right before the Lord. We're just focused on temporal, earthly things and aren't in a mindset to pray. Prayer is a challenge for me. I'm sure it is for you as well. 
So it's comforting to know that it was a challenge for the first disciples as well. They, like us, had to ask Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. We need to learn this. We need to learn this spiritual discipline, and we need to learn how to pray properly. And in Matthew 6, verses 5 through 13, Jesus does exactly that. He teaches us how to pray. So let's read Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13, as the Lord teaches us how to pray. Verse 5, when you pray. By the way, as we go through this, notice the Lord's assumption. The Lord's assumption is that believers will pray. If you don't pray at all, it's because you're not on speaking terms with God. That means you're not saved. The assumption is that believers will pray. And now the Lord is going to teach us how to pray. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I want to begin our study of this marvelous passage by making a few general observations about it. First, I want you to notice that what Jesus gives us here is a pattern for prayer, not a prepackaged prayer. It's a pattern for prayer. It's not a prepackaged prayer. Notice that he says in verse 9, pray then in this way. This is a pattern or a model for prayer. It's not a prepackaged prayer. He says pray in this way. He does not say pray this prayer or repeat these words or regularly recite this particular prayer. He says pray in this way. He's giving a pattern for prayer. This is not a prepackaged prayer which we're supposed to recite in a ritualistic fashion. In fact, to make the Lord's Prayer something you mindlessly repeat over and over would be to fall into the same errors that Jesus is confronting. What is he confronting? He is confronting the Pharisees who had memorized prayers and they were probably good prayers. We know what the content of some of them were. They were rooted in Old Testament theology. They memorized these prayers, but they thought that by ritualistically reciting them, that they would somehow be more pious and more righteous and better than others. The Pharisees would ritualistically repeat certain prayers, and Jesus rightly pointed out that mindless repetition, even of something good, becomes meaningless. So he's not giving us a prepackaged prayer. He's giving us a pattern for prayer. The Lord, as Luke points out in Luke 11, is teaching us how to pray, not what to say. He's teaching us how to pray, not what to say. Second, while there are virtually endless ways to outline the Lord's Prayer, I, I think MacArthur, who's following a long scholarly tradition, is correct about the basic structure. He says that the prayer has two major parts with three petitions in each part. Part one is a prayer for God's glory, and part two is a prayer for man's needs. And in each of those parts, there are three petitions. So 
in the part where we're praying for God's glory, we ask that his name be hallowed, that his kingdom would come, and that his will would be done. And then in the part where we're praying for man's needs, we pray for daily bread, we pray for forgiveness, and we pray for deliverance from the evil one. By the way, Hendrickson points out that the order of these two parts is important. God is before man. His glory comes before man's needs. He's in first place and we are in second place. That's something we often flip in our prayers. We jump immediately into our needs and we omit God's glory, praying for God's glory. Another way to organize the prayer is one that I gleaned from uh, the professor who taught me uh, in the class on prayer I took in seminary, a man by the name of Dr. Jim Roskup. Dr. Roskup was a very loved, gentle, kind, brilliant, and godly professor. I had him for hermeneutics, which is a class on Bible interpretation, and then a class on prayer. And you wouldn't think that the guy who teaches interpretation would be the same guy who would teach prayer, but that was Dr. Roskup, very precise in his handling of Scripture and an incredible model of prayer. I don't think any other class I had in seminary challenged my personal spiritual life as much as Dr. Roskup's class on prayer. He was a man who devoted his life to prayer and devoted his scholarly talents to studying prayer. In fact, his life's work, which he finished shortly before he died, was a four-volume, 2,800-page commentary on every verse and reference to prayer in the entire Bible. Katie gave me that four-volume set for my birthday last year. It was a massive project, which will be a treasure to the church for generations. It's the only work I know of which cover systematically every prayer in the Bible. Dr. Roskup's outline on the Lord's Prayer is very simple but yet profound, and I think it gives us a great pattern to follow in our personal prayers. He outlines it as praise in verse 9, petition in verses 10 through 11, confession in verse 12, then again petition, and then concludes with praise. It's a great kind of pattern just to follow. Praise, Petition, confession, petition, and then praise. Well, those are two ways of looking at the basic structure of the prayer and kind of organizing the content in your mind. Now I want to go through the passage verse by verse, and I want to do that with hearts that are saying, Lord, teach us to pray. Is that the desire of your heart? Is that your initial prayer. Think about this. Lord, teach us to pray. That's a prayer itself. So that should be kind of where we start. Lord, teach us to pray. Do you struggle with prayer like I do? Then start there. Lord, teach me to pray. Teach us as a congregation to pray. As we go through the passage, we're going to see 11 ways to pray. 11 ways to to pray. We're going to learn that we should pray with sincerity. We should pray in secret. We should pray succinctly. Pray substantively. Pray as a son. Pray for sanctification. Pray with submission. Pray for sustenance. Pray with sorrow. Pray for shepherding. And we should praise God for his supremacy. Now, whenever a preacher spends 10 minutes looking at the broad context of an important passage and then announces that he has 11 points in his sermon, people start to panic, especially if you have a roast in the oven or you have afternoon plans. So I don't want you to worry. I'm not going to attempt to cover all 11 today. As you know, I've been really trying to do each of our core values in one message. And I tried. I really tried this week. But there was no way I could preach on the Lord's Prayer in one week. There just wasn't. So our nine-part series just became a ten-part series. 
I have no idea how many parts it will be by the time we're done. So this morning we're going to introduce the Lord's Prayer and then we'll study the preceding verses in verses 5 through 8 and then next week we'll study the content of the prayer itself. By the time we're done, we will have seen 11 ways Jesus wants us to pray. So let's look at the first one in verse 5. And that is pray with sincerity. Pray with sincerity. In verse 5, Jesus says, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners. Why? So that. Why do they pray? So that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. They prayed for a purpose, to be seen, and they were seen. And that's all their prayer accomplished. Prayed to be seen, they were seen, and it all ends there. They have their reward in full. Jesus begins his teaching on prayer by contrasting those who pray with sincerity with the hypocrites who pray for show. The hypocrites were not really interested in talking to God. They just wanted to look good to men. You know, virtue signaling is nothing new. Virtue signaling didn't start in the 2000s. It has always existed. As long as there have been human beings and as long as human beings have been hypocrites, there has been virtue signaling. People did it in Jesus' day just like they do now. How people virtue signal may change by culture and time, but the fact that hypocrites virtue signal is endemic to human nature. For the hypocrite, prayer is not communication and communion with the Father. That's not what prayer is. For them, prayer is just a way to show off in front of their friends. The hypocrite is focused on impressing the community, not the Creator. Prayer is just a show. It's a performance. It is performance art. We get our word hypocrite directly from the Greek term used here. Hypocrites. It just means putting on an act in order to give a false impression to others. It's being an actor. It's being one thing and pretending to be another. They pray... Jesus says, in order to be seen by men. It is a show. It's a performance. So the first lesson on prayer that the Lord wants us to learn is to examine our motive for praying. Why do you pray? Do you pray to talk to God? Or do you pray to be seen by people? Which is it? It cannot be both. Are we praying to God or are we puffing up our own pride? Do we pray to God for the glory of God or do we pray to no one for our own vainglory? Why did I say do we pray to no one for our own vainglory? Well, that's because of what Jesus says in Luke chapter 18. Listen to Luke 18, 10 through 14. Start in verse 9 actually. Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the Pharisee exalted himself. He didn't pray with humble prayer. He prayed with proud prayer. And proud prayer is a non-prayer. Listen carefully to what Jesus says about the Pharisee. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to God? No, no, no. Listen to what Jesus says. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. 
He wasn't even talking to God. He was talking to himself. He was his own God. And he was praising himself for his good deeds. He was praying to his true object of worship, himself. That is what Jesus is warning us about in Matthew chapter 6. Do not pray for vain glory. Don't pray that way. Don't pray to yourself for yourself. Pray to God for the glory of God. In other words, you must pray with humility and sincerity. That's why the core value is humble prayer. Humility is a prerequisite to genuine prayer, which is why we've included humility in the title of our core value. We're not interested in just any form of prayer. We're interested in humble prayer. The creation under our creator in humility communicating with him. Pray with humble sincerity. The second thing Jesus teaches us is to pray in secret. Look at verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room. Close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Pray in secret. Verse 6 is a continuation of the topic introduced by verse 5. And here Jesus gives us a practical way to avoid the hypocritical attention-seeking, pride-praying of the Pharisees, which he had just warned about in verse 5. If you pray where no one but God can see you, you'll know you're doing it for him and not for them. Motives are a little hard to discern, aren't they? You have genuine motives, but you sense this little tinge of pride. Do you know the way you can pray and be sure you're not doing it for people? Don't do it in front of people. Pray in secret. Pray in secret. If you pray where no one but God can see you, you'll know you're doing it for him, not for them. At least if you don't post about it on Facebook afterwards. <laughs> Secret prayer is the antidote for showing, showy prayer. Secret prayer is the antidote for showy prayer. Showy prayer seeks its reward from people, their adulation. Secret prayer seeks its reward from God. Pray where only God can see you. The vast majority of our prayers should take place when only God can see and hear. Most of our prayer time should consist of one-to-one -one conversations with the Lord. I want to illustrate this point using the analogy of the church as the bride of Christ. Scripture talks about the church being the bride of Christ. Imagine two spouses. You see them in the restaurant conversing with each other. You see them in groups conversing with each other. You see them in the lobby conversing with each other. But then you find out that they never talk in private. They never have a conversation in private. What would your conclusion be about their relationship? It would be the same conclusion that sometimes in pastoral counseling you reach. There is a deep problem here. They only talk to each other in front of their kids. In private, it's ice cold. They only talk to each other in the lobby so that everyone thinks their marriage is okay, but in private, they don't say a word. It's the silent treatment. It would be strange if a couple never talked to each other except when they're in front of other people. And that would be a sure sign that something is dreadfully wrong with their relationship. If you only talk to God in public and never in private, Something has gone terribly wrong. Secret prayer is a key indicator of our spiritual health. So how are you doing? This was really convicting for me. As a pastor, my day is filled with what seems to me a lot of prayer. I have meetings with pastors and elders and other people, and we pray in those meetings. So I've We'll pray and then I'll counsel someone and we'll pray and 
then we'll be with someone else and we'll pray. And so throughout the day, every day I'm praying. And I feel like I'm praying a lot. But then I come to a verse like this and I'm thinking, what's the ratio of private prayer and public or pastoral prayer? Very convicting. Secret prayer is a key indicator of our spiritual health. Now I want to pause here and note that Jesus is not condemning praying publicly in church or in other appropriate situations. In fact, the Lord's Prayer itself teaches corporate prayer. Notice the plurals. Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us our debts. Give us our daily bread. Plurals. So clearly, corporate prayer is permitted even in this passage and encouraged. So Jesus is not saying that it's always wrong to pray in public. What, what is he saying? Listen to this. It's not wrong to pray in public, but it is wrong to pray for the public. It's not wrong to pray in public, but it is wrong to pray for the public. Public prayer is fine. It's, public prayers are recorded throughout Scripture. David prayed publicly, was commended by God for doing so. Daniel prayed publicly, was commended for doing so. Jesus himself often prayed in public. But while Jesus prayed in public, he never prayed for the public or only for the public. And he prayed more in private than he did in public. He is said to have often gone away by himself to pray. So Hendrickson comments, quote, What the Lord condemns here is ostentatious praying. That is having one's private devotions in the most public place with the intention of being seen and honored by the people. So the second lesson the Lord teaches as he shows us the proper way to pray is pray most often in secret where only God can see you. How's your appetite for private prayer? Do you love being one-on-one with the Lord, hearing from him through his word and talking to him in prayer? Pray in secret. Third, pray succinctly. Look at verses 7 through 8. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. In other words, pray succinctly. Jesus says that the pagans pray with, quote, meaningless repetition. And we still see that today. People spin prayer wheels. They have these little prayer reminders. Multiple religions have these kind of prayer beads where they go through and they kind of work their way through these ritualistic prayers. Ritualistic, repetitive prayer is still the hallmark of false religions and cults. Has been, is, and always will be. The term for meaningless repetition here is batalageo. Some people think that it's supposed to sound like what it is, just babbling. And that's what it means. It means to babble. It means to use lots of words with little meaning. Lots of quantity, little quality. This is a pagan concept of prayer. 1 Kings 18.26 says that the prophets of Baal chanted the same phrase from morning until noon. And Elijah mocks them, asking if their God was sleeping and if they were chanting to try to wake him up. To put it in modern vernacular, was Baal still hitting the snooze button and so they needed to keep ringing the alarm? Was there chanting the buzzing of an alarm clock trying to wake up a sleepy God? That's what they were doing. Baal wasn't answering because Baal was nothing. Just wooden stone. But maybe if you chant enough, maybe if you do a ritual enough, the false God will answer. In Acts 19, New Testament, the pagans in Ephesus chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. 
Why did they do that? Well, first of all, to drown out the preaching of the gospel. Why does Satan like meaningless repetition in prayer? Because it drowns out the content of the gospel. That's its purpose. It's a very pious way of putting your fingers in your ears and saying, I can't hear you, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. That's what they were doing in, in, in Ephesus. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. They didn't want to hear the gospel. They drowned it out with meaningless repetition. And that's what pagans do. They think meaningless repetition somehow increases spiritual power. So beware of those who teach meaningless repetition as some sort of pious advancement. Jesus warns against those who will slip in even to the believing congregations, the community of believers with such teachings and practices. Mark chapter 12, verse 38 says, beware of the scribes, the scholars of the day. They like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Just for show, long prayers. Meaningless repetition. Beloved, the goal of prayer is not quantity, it is quality. It's better to pray biblically for five minutes than to babble mindlessly for 50. And Jesus tells us why mindless repetition is unnecessary and wrong. He says in verse 8, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Why is meaningless repetition not only unnecessary but wrong? Well, it's because... Meaningless repetition presupposes a false and, frankly, insulting view of God. It's, it's when we picture God as being a lot like Baal. He doesn't get it the first time. So you have to tell him 50 times or 100 times. He's reluctant or distracted or off on a journey somewhere, and so you have to nag him in order to get him to listen. Beloved, God is not stupid. You don't have to tell him the same thing a hundred times for him to finally understand. Do you get annoyed when your children say, can I have a drink, 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 mom, can I have a drink, please, 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 please? Why does that annoy you? And what do you say? You say, I heard you the first time, and I already know you're thirsty. God is not stupid. You don't have to tell him the same thing a hundred times to get him to understand. And God is not distracted and disinterested. You don't have to badger and nag him in order to get him to answer. That's the pagan conception of God. Don't do that. Now, I'm not saying that persistence in prayer is wrong. There's a difference here, and I want to make that distinction. Persistence in prayer is a good thing. It's necessary and it's commended by the Lord and was practiced by the Lord. Paul said he prayed three times for the thorn in the flesh to be removed. Jesus prayed three times in Gethsemane for the cup to pass from him and for the Father's will to be done. Jesus also taught the parable of the persistent widow to teach us to persevere in prayer. So, for example, it is a good thing to pray day by day and week by week and month by month and year by year, decade after decade, for the salvation of a loved one. Regular prayer is a good thing. But what would not be good would be spend an hour chanting, God, please save him. Please, 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 please save. Oh, save. Oh, God, please save. Please save my brother. Please, please save my brother. Oh, God, please, please save him. Save him. Save him. Save him. That would be meaningless repetition. So here's the principle. Regular prayer is good. Repetitive prayer is not. Regular prayer is good. Repetitive prayer is not good. Do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. As a parent, you can see that your child is hungry. You already know they're hungry. 
but you like for them to ask, don't you? Daddy, please. Regular prayer is good, repetitive prayer is not. Your father knows what you need before you even ask, so pray succinctly. That honors him. It tells him that you believe in his omniscience, that you believe in his love and his interest and his care for you. Pray succinctly. That is an indicator of faith. It is Gentile thinking or pagan thinking to suppose that more words or more repetition will somehow convince a reluctant God. That's not who he is, so don't treat him that way. Fourth and finally, pray substantively. Pray substantively. Look at verse 9, the very first phrase. It's, Jesus says, pray then in this way. And then he gives a very substantive pattern for prayer. Full of content. So full of content that I had to decide to devote a whole separate week to covering that content. Pray in this way. Well, what way? Substantively. As we've been talking about throughout this message in Luke 11, the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray. Biblical prayer is something that must be learned and for it to be learned, it must be taught. And that's what Jesus is doing at the beginning of verse 9. He's teaching us how to pray. And the fact that he needs to teach us to pray tells us that he wants our prayers to be substantive, not shallow. We need to grow in maturity. And one of the ways we grow in maturity is growing in the content and substance of our prayers. You know, the prayers of many believers are the prayers of spiritual infants. It's kind of cute, but it doesn't seem like they ever grow. If you see a toddler in the grocery store with his father, what's the communication from toddler to father like? Daddy, can I have this toy? Daddy, can I please have a candy bar? Daddy, please, can we go to McDonald's afterwards? That's how a toddler talks to their father. Sometimes when you go to prayer meetings in churches, it sounds a lot like that. Father, give me this. Give me that. Can I have more of this, please? Can I have more of that, please? Sadly, the majority of prayers are for temporal things and for physical things, not for spiritual things or eternal things. That's a sign of spiritual immaturity. A child does not, if you're in the grocery store, just, you know, sometimes watch, don't creepily watch, but watch a toddler with his father. And have you ever heard a toddler saying, Dad, please don't buy that candy bar. Um, deposit the money in an interest-bearing account for my college fund instead, please. A toddler will never say that. Why? Because a toddler is short-sighted. He can only think of the now. He can only think of five minutes from now. He can't think of 18 years later when college is going to cost a lot of money. He has no view of the long-term future. But as a person matures, their gaze goes farther. They see farther into the future. And they see past things which are frivolous to things which are more important. When you pray, are you focused on the immediate or are you focused on the eternal? Are you focused on the kind of daily desires of the body or are you focused upon the eternality of the soul? Are you focused on substantive things or frivolous things? Do you know one of the major reasons prayer meetings have died off in America? I've been thinking about it. Why? Why was it that a few decades ago, every church had prayer meetings and they were well attended and then they started to wither away, less and less people attending until the point where people said, why are we even doing this? No one comes. And prayer meetings died off. Well, why? There's multiple factors, but here's one of them to consider. 
the spiritual immaturity of the average church member made prayer meetings tedious and boring. That's the truth. It's kind of hard to spend a full hour listening to people pray for trivial things. Prayer meetings became focused on trivial things. Look, I'm not saying that we can't bring even unimportant matters to God. We can. But if a prayer meeting consists of prayers for a child not to be nervous during a recital and for Aunt Edna to remember to take her pills, and there is no prayer for the majesty of God, for the coming kingdom of God, for the salvation of souls, for things that last forever, if everything is about the immediate needs and can I have this toy and that candy bar and help me with my homework and all of this, if there is nothing grand and long-term and eternal and glorious about prayer, why would you go? Frivolity and trivial prayers killed prayer meetings. And it's a reflection of spiritual immaturity. Well, how did that happen? Well, I, I think a lot of the blame lies with the pastorate. The church growth, growth movement swept America in the 70s and 80s. And this was a philosophy of ministry that said, look, dumb things down for the congregation. Inherently, it was kind of insulting, I think. Well, people aren't really all that bright. You know, you're a big scholar. They're not very bright, so dumb it down for them. You know, put, put the cookies on the lower shelf. And you know what preachers have been doing for a couple decades? Feeding people cookies from the lower shelf. And then, and then we wonder why their spiritual immaturity and why all of the prayers of the congregation are about cookies. The churches dropped their focus on discipleship and stopped teaching substantive doctrine. That left the members of many churches in spiritual immaturity, and their prayers reflect that. They're not very interested in prayer, and when they do pray, it sounds like dozens of three-year-olds asking their daddy to give them more candy and toys. You know what will sadly probably have to take place to change that is persecution. Because I will guarantee you, you go to a prayer meeting in a persecuted country and there is substantive praying Lord when we share the gospel and when we die help us to not waver it's a little more substantive than what you hear in the US we're trying to revive the practice of corporate prayer in our Sunday evening services and we are working hard to make the prayer times substantive we want our prayer times as a church to reflect the depth, the impact, and the substance that the prayers of Scripture contain. I want to give you just one example from the book of Ephesians. For this reason, here's a prayer in Scripture. For this reason, I too want to ask for my child's recital that they won't be nervous. Again, I'm not saying, parents, that you shouldn't pray for your child not to be nervous at a prayer recital. But what I'm saying is, it, it, it doesn't bother me that that's part of prayer. But what bothers me is what's not part of prayer. Where is the parts of prayer in our prayer meetings that are like this? Ephesians 1.15. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. Is that the type of prayer that's coming out of your prayer closet and in our prayer meetings? What about 
chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Pray substantively. We need to go deeper and grow in our understanding of God's word and we need to grow and increase the depth and substance of our prayers. Well, next week we're going to see seven things from the Lord's prayer itself and we're going to see that those seven qualities are substantive. They have content. But we'll end here for today. We've covered four of the 11 ways Jesus teaches us to pray. He teaches us to pray with sincerity, to pray in secret, to pray succinctly, and to pray substantively. I want to end with a question for your heart and mine. Do we really want to learn to pray? Do you want to learn to pray? Is my heart and yours saying what that first disciples, one of the first disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. I think that's the best prayer to start with. So let's go there now. Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach me to pray. Lord, if we are not a people of prayer, how can we expect to make impact in this culture, in this world? Lord, teach us to pray, to really pray. Make us a praying church. Make me a praying pastor. Lord, teach us to pray. Amen.